Okay, so my name is Will Stevie, and this is Samuel Webb, and we are doing Can We Trust the Bible Today? As a preface, um, some of the goals that we want to have coming out of this is to be able to have the authority of Scripture, like take that on wholeheartedly, and just really have that as our foundation and trust in the Scriptures as our ultimate authority and foundation. Um, this is going to allow us to answer skeptics well when they ask you, hey, why do you, why do you believe that a guy rose from the dead? Or why do you believe in this crazy old book that's probably been changed a bunch of times? It'll allow us to answer skeptics very well. Uh, I think it is something that we can fall back on when, when doubts arise, um, just like all the stuff we do, all these talks that we're doing, uh, kind of things to lean on when the emotions of our faith aren't super strong. Uh, we can lean back on some solid truths. Um, so yeah, we're really excited, but we'll pray first. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would um, help us to see the trustworthiness of the scriptures and the wealth of evidence that we have and the um, just the abundance of reasons why we are Christians and why we, I think, um, have good reasons to trust and proclaim uh, gospel to other people. And uh, I just pray that you would uh, help us learn from each other and uh, sharpen our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, great quote to start out with some lofty language, as ancient writers usually use, but this is a John Calvin quote. He says, speaking of the scriptures, how admirably the system of divine wisdom contained in it is arranged, how perfectly free the doctrine is from everything that savors of earth, how beautifully it harmonizes in all its parts, and how rich it is in all the other qualities which give it an air of majesty to composition. Pretty lofty quote. <clears throat> okay, before we get into the seven different sections uh, of actually like why we should trust the Bible, we're going to quick talk about epistemology, so like how do we know things is basically that question. Um, so just a couple of things on this. There are a few different approaches that people use when we're talking about the Bible. One is the historical approach. So there's a lot of books you can find that talk about how trustworthy the Bible is just based on looking at history and the documents um, and just how many uh, historical events we can prove. Uh, and we can actually do quite a lot from that approach. Mm. Other approach is like a literary approach, like how well put together is this piece of literature? And um, also like, does it work? Are there contradictions? Is it a good piece of literature? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Some people take that approach when it comes to the Bible. And then there's also the philosophical approach. Like you can make a philosophical argument for the trustworthiness of the Bible and knowing if it is trustworthy. Um, so those are a couple different approaches. We aren't going to go like super in depth into each of them. This is just like letting you know that what we're using, yeah. we're, we kind of like took from all of these approaches. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's. And yeah, another point I want to make here is that no one just like trusts science or something like that. That's a very kind of common claim that's thrown around today. Um, everybody at found, like the most foundational things that we believe are all based off of trust and, and having faith in different things, faith in persons mostly. So even like scientists are resting their beliefs and trust on a bunch of different persons interpreting other scientific experiments and things like that. They're trusting in a whole bunch of things that they can't actually verify by the scientific method. And we've talked about like the self-defeating nature of scientism, the idea that we should only believe things that science can prove or something like that, which is a self-defeating claim. You can't prove that by science. And 
So just making the point that everybody's in this position, everybody, every worldview is in the position of having to trust people and testimony for the most important things that we believe. We're all in that position. So, yeah. The overview. So these are the seven things we're going to go through. First one is internal consistency in the Bible. So why the Bible as literature is just trustworthy in and of itself. Next is manuscript reliability. So we're going to look at actually the historical documents we have of the Bible. Uh, then historical accuracy. So does it actually describe what really happened? Or um, like, do we have proof of the things in the Bible actually happening? Uh, next one, we're going to go over fulfilled prophecy. Uh, there's a ton, and it's actually really fascinating. So we're going to hit that topic. Then we're going to go into eyewitness testimonies, uh, specifically the Gospels. And then we're going to hit timeless authority, as in why does the authority not change? Why does it continue on? And then finally, we're going to get into supernatural authenticity and why um, the authority and why we trust the Bible is like divine and comes straight from God and is beyond nature. Mm -hmm. All right, so first, internal consistency. And then we'll have Samuel explain this really cool picture because I know he, he likes this picture. It's cool. Yeah. It probably doesn't look like anything, but it's actually a really cool picture. So um, the Bible is made up of 66 books composed by 40 plus different authors in multiple languages over a period of like 1,500 years. Okay. And they're all portraying a, a consistent, cohesive narrative of creation, fall, redemption. Over the course of all this time, all these authors, all these different contexts, all portraying the same consistent message about the same person. Uh, and it's incredibly complex, and yet it all points to the same guy. Uh, is very cool, and, and just points to the consistency, the internal consistency of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. It's very impressive. It uh, kind of smacks of divine authorship in that regard. Uh, even apparent contradictions, like one example is the angels of the tomb, that different gospel accounts give different amounts of angels that come to the tomb, is often a critique against this idea of internal consistency. Um, should not be viewed as contradictory but regular features of independent testimonies of the same event. So oftentimes, like if you have a police report or something like that, and multiple people are giving the same story of what happened, like a burglary or something, each of them will give kind of a different side of the story. And it actually kind of makes it, like it's greater authenticity when you're able to see actual differences, like slight differences in the accounts. If all the gospels said exactly, exactly the same thing, that would actually mark against its authenticity. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more, but just that's often raised as a critique against internal consistency, but I don't think it should be. Um, and just one example of the consistent testimony of scripture in sort of a subtle way is the way Genesis starts and the way Revelation ends. So we have this idea of Genesis starting in a garden and it being perfect, and then in Revelation it ending back in that state of a garden city. Um, and so there's just subtle, clear consistent messaging throughout the whole of scripture that is very striking. <clears throat> and before I explain the picture, one more thing on why the contradictions would show that it is actually authentic is because when police officers are looking for a conspiracy, uh, people that have made up a conspiracy say the exact same thing for every single detail. They plan it out like that. And like when, um, when a police officer goes to a crime scene, the first thing they have the police officers there do is separate the witnesses so they cannot talk to each other and come up with one story, mm -hmm. right? Um, because if the police officer then came and they talked to each other, they would get just the same story over and over and not be able to piece everything together. Um, so that's kind of why it points more towards, hey, it's trustworthy. Mm 
Okay, but the picture, this is like my favorite picture when it comes to the Bible. So in that picture on the bottom, all those like white lines, those are every single verse of the Bible, just like in order. And every single line you see that is colored is a biblical reference. So this is like, we, we've been talking about uh, the Bible being a hyperlinked document. Well, he put it like a hyperlinked document on steroids. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is why we say that, because every single one of those lines is a connection to um, another part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's how connected it is, and that's how internally consistent it is. And so... If you get like a reference Bible, where it's just like if you read a verse and then on the side it'll tell you how many verses it's actually referencing or connects to, that's, that's it. It's like the most complex book in history. No, no person or uh, human could have made something like this on, on their own. Mm-hmm. Right? That's how amazing and complex it is. So, and it also looks beautiful. So, mm-hmm. Manuscript reliability. Uh, So, this is our second point. We're going to go over the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, the Old Testament, when we're talking about the manuscripts, it's a little bit harder to kind of figure out the Old Testament for a couple reasons. The the Hebrew language, when it started, it actually started off with, like, the letters actually representing things. So, certain letters represented actual objects instead of putting letters together. But then, even when they started writing stuff down in, in... what we know, like how we know language usually functions, they didn't use vowels at first. And so a lot of the older transcripts and a lot of the um, uh, kind of like when people were transcribing it down, they would have certain formulas they would follow to figure it out, but those formulas weren't full, foolproof. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while they would run into a word where they couldn't exactly figure out what vowels were supposed to be there or what exact word it's supposed to be. Um, so that's, that's just one kind of um, bad thing about the Hebrew language when it comes to us trusting the manuscripts. Uh, now, for the manuscripts and how many we have, or do we have enough of them, Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and the Masoretic uh, texts, those are probably our best texts we have. They're very, very old, and we have a bunch of them. And they're probably our best documents of the Old Testament, where we actually do have full Old Testaments. But again, it's just the Hebrew language is so old that it's sometimes hard to translate or, or something like that. But um, for being certain about like every single word being perfectly translated into the English language, um, so like some scholars would would say 90% sure. Like, we can be 90% sure of every single word, and that's more on, like, that's like the scholars giving up a little. Mm-hmm. So it, it, a lot of scholars would actually say higher, but in general, that's how certain we can be. Uh, but again, we still know the main story, and we don't, and, and it's not like these, these errors or these things that are hard to translate, like, we don't know nothing about them, but... It's just, we, we know it's there, but it's yeah. not like we're missing a part of the Bible. We, right. we have it. It's just hard to figure out sometimes. And it's also from a like critical historical perspective. This mm-hmm. is kind of what we're talking about here. From a Christian point of view, like it's reasonable for us to believe the exact words we have in the Old and New Testament are exactly what God wants us to have in those books because mm-hmm. we have 
trust in God. And we mm -hmm. have that belief. And so that, that's reasonable. But this is from like a purely historical, like hypercritical perspective. Mm -hmm. What would they concede? That sort of a thing. Yeah. And then the final point on the Old Testament manuscripts is that when it comes to inspiration and like the original documents, all we would say is that the original actual document that was written on by the author when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's the only one we say is completely error-free. Anytime it was transcribed or translated, it is subject to someone making an error because not every single person translating or transcribing it is inspired like that from the Holy Spirit. So they are able to make an error. Um, now, the New Testament, uh, we will do an ancient document comparison. We actually have a photo on the next slide. And it's a really, really cool photo that we'll get into. But uh, for now, we'll move to the next thing, uh, translations in the New Testament. So a lot of people actually object to the New Testament because we have so many translations. They say, OK, how can we know what the Bible says if we have so many translations? Well, first thing, you can always just go back to the original language because we have those. But if you are really questioning the translations, they're just the different translations have different purposes. And it's really no reason to not trust the Bible. It's just um, style of how to translate the language. Mm -hmm. So like thought for thought as opposed to word for word. Um, but it's not really that big because we still have the original language. Um, but yeah. Now, another reason to believe the New Testament documents is something called chain of evidence. So here's an analogy. When, when the police kind of do like a drug bust or something like that and they have evidence, Every time it moves from one officer to the next, they have to document it and write down like how many they have, what they have, exactly what it looks like, so that if a police officer writes something down and it's different from what the previous officer wrote down, they could figure out what changed, who changed it, and what went wrong. And so throughout history, we have um, so many documents throughout time. Yes, some of them are like in in Latin or different languages, but we have so many throughout time that we can go back and kind of cross-reference and say, hey, here's uh, the oldest document we have, and then here's the second oldest document we have, and we can see who translated it, how they translated it, if they made an error, or mm -hmm. if they forgot a word. And we have so many copies that we can just kind of see which one's the correct one. Okay. Um, now, for the New Testament documents, we can be at least 99% certain. And so like Christian and atheist scholars will, will admit to this. Um, so I actually, I have a story about William Lane Craig and Bart Ehrman. If you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, he's this famous atheist scholar. He used to be a Christian and he was going through seminary and learning how to translate the Bible. And what happened was he then, because of uh, the so-called errors stopped believing. He's like, we can't actually trust the Bible. But William Lane Craig went to school with him. He's, a, he's also a famous scholar. But he, he noted Bart Ehrman's response on a, on a Catholic podcast one time. So he was on a Catholic podcast, and Bart Ehrman was saying, like, oh, the Bible has so many errors. All these things are wrong. We can't trust it. All right? And then the guy on the podcast, the one who was hosting it, the Catholic, he was just like, well, what do you think the original document said? And then Bart Ehrman was like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? Um, he's like, well, there's so many errors. How can we know what the original documents actually said? And then like, right after Bart Ehrman said all these errors, he was like, oh, yeah, we know exactly what it says. It says what it says today. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So Bart Ehrman is kind of known for like misleading people in that way where he would be like, oh, we have all these errors. But then he'll be like, yeah, we know exactly what it says. Right. Um, what he so, means by errors are things like what we call textual variations. So from one translation to another, the scribe will say something like instead of and, he'll say an or something like that. Like mm -hmm. small word variations that change no theological meaning to any of the texts. Mm -hmm. That's the vast majority of what he calls errors are textual variations, not mm -hmm. concerning, in yeah. other words. But yes, when you're reading the New Testament, even in the English, you can be at least 99% sure that you know every single word and what the New Testament is saying. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, from a like, uh, hypercritical historical view of yeah. these things. And here's the, uh, the picture of the ancient documents kind of comparison, okay? Uh, so, if you look at these, these are other ancient documents that historians will completely say, hey, we should trust these. These are perfectly trustworthy, so we have the books, the dates, and the earliest copies and everything like that. And it also shows the, the time gap between the event and when we got the document. So. Mm -hmm. I'll go through a couple examples. So at the very top, Homer and the Iliad, um, it's projected to be written around 800 BC. The earliest copy we have is 400 BC. So that's a 400 year time gap between when it was written and the copy we actually have. So there, there could have been a lot of changes within that time, mm -hmm. right? And we have 643 copies of that. Now, um, they would say that's really good, but if we even go down to one of the lower ones, so like let's take Plato um, and his writings. He had a bunch of writings, but we would say the date written was 400 BC. Um, then the earliest copies we have is AD 900. That's a, a 1,000 year mm. time period where we don't know what happens. All right. And we, um, oh no, sorry, 1300 year. Sorry, I messed that up. 1300 year time period where we don't know what happened. And we only have seven copies of that, but historians are still willing to say, hey, we can trust that this is what Plato believed and said or wrote, right? right. Um, which is crazy. And then if, if we look at all these and then go all the way down to the New Testament, mm -hmm. the date it's written, AD 50 to AD 100, um, the earliest copies we have, um, well, you can look, I'm not going to say, say all those, but the time gap we have is like 50 years. So within a generation, mm -hmm. which is much better than the rest of the ancient documents. And the number of copies we have is five, uh, well, I think it might even be more now because this is an more. older picture, but we know there's at least uh, 5,000. So we have thousands upon thousands of copies of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And atheist scholars were like, yeah, we, we can't trust it, but they're willing to say, oh yeah, we trust the rest of these ancient documents. Right. And if we compare, the New Testament is obviously and clearly more trustworthy than the rest of them. Yeah, and just two points real quick. The, the, the argument is not, there's a lot of copies of the New Testament, therefore you should believe in Christianity. That's not a great argument. There's a bajillion copies of the New York Times, and I don't believe anything that the New York Times says. <laughs> but the, the argument is, if you trust other historical sources about Plato or Pliny the Younger or any of these ancient documents, then it's a double standard to suddenly get super skeptical with the New Testament just because you don't like religion or Christianity. So the argument is that if you trust these other things, mm -hmm. secular historian, you should really trust the Bible because it has far better grounds to trust it. And so it, it does lend some credence in that regard, I think. Mm -hmm. And then the other point, I forgot. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right.
Okay, so historical accuracy. There's a ton of different stuff we want to cover here, but we won't be able to get to all of it. Well, I'll try, but we won't cover the entire topic that's possible to cover. Um, but just one general point that comes up a lot with kind of biblical arguments here about historical accuracy is the Bible is consistently brutally honest and embarrassing for humanity. Um, other ancient documents do not portray humans in as bad of a light as the Bible does. Um, other like ancient cultures will portray their own culture as always winning the big battle or succeeding or whatever. And the Bible consistently portrays Israel as just failing time and time and time and time again. The New Testament constantly portrayed the disciples as just blundering everything. And so it's just kind of like, if this is something that the disciples or the early church is recreating, why would they make it so embarrassing <laughs> for for uh, the disciples? Why would they make it so embarrassing for like the leader of the church, Peter or, or James, to you know betray Christ or all these different things? Or why would they have women uh, discover the tomb when in that culture that's no one trusts the testimony of women in that culture? And yeah, likewise with Israel, they're not gonna. It's honest, and so it's 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 it lends credence to the idea that this is like portraying real events. Um, but we're going to go into some some archaeological stuff, which is really really cool. This is like two examples, um, but we're gonna you could look this stuff up on your own, and it's super super cool. Look up like top ten archaeological finds of the Bible or something like that. And there's a whole rabbit trail of stuff, and it's really really cool. But just a couple examples is we have um, like like uh, multiple cities that are described as being like burned down. Destruction by fire is kind of the term. And this is really, really helpful for archeologists because when you burn something down, it preserves certain things really, really well. Actually like metals and stuff like that get preserved very well. And so there's multiple cities that are described in like Joshua and um, first and second Samuel that are burned down by the Israelites, like uh, Jericho and Ai and Hatzor are these three cities that were destroyed by fire. And we like have the remains of the city and we can see stuff there. Like Jericho's probably the coolest one. Um, there's really, really cool stuff with the city of Jericho and the destruction of it and like what we found about it. Um, can't go into everything. But basically, you guys know about how they walked around the walls and then the wall came down. They blew the trumpets and then the wall came down by like a miracle. It wasn't them breaking the wall down. And so there's actually kind of evidence that the wall fell down from a sort of top-down manner that gave a ramp right up into the city. And it's like very interesting and weird how the wall fell down based off of the archeological evidence. There are things like the, the storehouses of grain and stuff like that in the city of Jericho are all preserved. And if you remember in that story, the Israelites were commanded to not take any of those things, not take the stores of grain, not take the food because that was supposed to be consecrated to the Lord. And so there's stuff like that that's just there still, like full huge grain stores of this ancient city. Really cool stuff like that. Um, and there's these multiple cities that kind of have all of these marks of the biblical record, which is really, really neat. Um, there is some external evidence. What we mean by external and internal evidence, external evidence means not from the scriptures, just secular, what we mean by secular, just extra biblical sources attesting to biblical stuff. And so we have a bunch of these tablets. There's one in particular that we can show on the next slide. It's called the Tel Don inscription. Uh, Tel Don is just the location that they uh, dug this up, but basically it is a stone tablet that uh, has the has the phrase House of David written in like the 10th century before Christ, so like 900s BC. And there's a couple different tablets that say stuff like this. So it's kind of the right time period and it's saying there's this thing floating around called the House of David, um, which is very, very neat. Um, so 
and then some internal evidence is stuff like, most atheists won't think that this is very credible, but it actually is interesting because as these things are being written, they're not like as cohesive as we are now. We have this compiled thing called the Bible. But stuff like accounts in First and Second Samuel and then Joshua are like independent accounts portraying historical events, and they're, and they're agreeing and saying the same things, um, written at different times, but describing the same events in very coincidental ways that kind of, again, smack of authenticity and historical accuracy, which is very cool. Uh, and then New Testament, the sort of archaeological point there is we have a bunch of different things, but we're going to talk about one in particular is the um, stone tablet that is attesting to Pontius Pilate's existence. So for a long time, it was really only the Bible that said Pontius Pilate was a real person, he existed, all these different things, and there's actually a lot of skepticism about whether he lived, the story around Pontius Pilate, etc. And we have a stone tablet that was like found fairly recently, relatively recently. 1900s. 1900s, that attests to his existence and, and some of those things. Um, there are things like other external evidence is uh, the two historians, Josephus and Tacitus. These were two non-biblical historians, very critical of Christianity, actually, but they're actually writing as historians. And basically, the, the basic gospel narrative laid out in terms of the life and death of, of Jesus is basically laid out in secular historical sources. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, so it's not just the Bible says so. There are multiple different extra-biblical sources saying, also, this stuff happened. Uh, this guy died, and it was a huge hubbub, and now his followers are crazy and starting a church and stuff. Um, so that's very interesting. Uh, internal evidence we have from the New Testament is just the striking historical accuracy of a book like Acts. Uh, there are many places where Acts will, will uh, say sp specific names or specific locations or places, and then uh, secular scholars have been convinced that they got something wrong there in Acts, that Luke like recorded something incorrectly, and then later they found that he was actually right. And there was like two people with the same name or something like that. Uh, there's been tons of different things like that with the book of Acts, which is really cool. And in the beginning of Luke, we talked about this last time. Mm -hmm. But just read the beginning of Luke, and it's like, okay, he's clearly trying to document a historical account. Um, so there's so much stuff <clears throat> we could go in there, there but that's, that's about good for now. Mm. Uh, Peter's house. That was um, just this, uh, have this structure that we kind of think is potentially the Apostle Peter's house. Um, and we kind of have a lot of evidence of like Jewish and Christian graffiti in the house that is very significant. Uh, so there's just tons of stuff like this. Like this is a good thing to just go and, and rabbit hole for yourself of these different archaeological finds that support the Old and New Testament. It's super, really, it's super cool. Mm -hmm. um, and a really good book on this is Michael Icona, The Resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. We should have a whole book list for yeah. these next couple talks. And, and there are so many books. We could, we could <laughs> recommend, uh, probably, we could pr probably find and recommend at least 20. Yeah. Um, but one of the best that I think is, is Michael Kona's, uh, <clears throat> it's historiographical approach to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's a really big book, but he goes over like, he, he just goes over so much. It's, yeah. it's incredible. If you were to read the whole thing, you'd be impressed. Yeah. And yeah. another book that we're drawing a lot from is the, can we trust the gospels book by Peter Williams, which is like a hundred pages and it's a really easy read. Mm. Um, that's a great book to read as well. Okay. All right, now we have um, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecies. All right, uh, so we, so after this, we actually have again a couple charts to show you of fulfilled prophecies because mm -hmm. there's a lot more than just these two. <laughs> um, we're just like gonna explain these because these are the ones we really, really like. Yeah. Uh, 
So, but but just just to let you know, I think you you looked up the stat of yeah. how many prophecies were fulfilled. Right. It's um, kind of it's kind of difficult to like track this down super well, but some people say that there's like something like 550 places where Jesus fulfills something from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a slippery thing though, because it's like a lot of them are repeats, a lot of them are repeated prophecies, or even just like types. Like Adam's a type of Christ. Talked about that word before. Mm-hmm. And so is that really a prophecy? It's kind of like whatever. Um, lots of illusions. And so it's, it's difficult to pin down what exactly is a prophecy or not and what's a fulfilled prophecy. But something like 300 as a conservative estimate, Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfills in his earthly ministry, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And if it was 100, that would be insane. Um, and so there's so much there, and it's really cool. And it's cool to look back into the Old Testament and see basically every single one of these events is in some way portraying Christ in some way or pointing to him in some way mm-hmm. ultimately gets fulfilled with him in some way. Basically, every event yeah. of Jesus' life is predicted in the Old Testament. Yeah. It's really cool. So, yeah, if, if we do have evidence of, like, hey, the Old Testament documents were written way before, and then we have the New Testament documents and also just the events happening, and we have good uh, historical evidence for that, mm-hmm. we can then say, wow, all this was predicted, and mm-hmm. that's... Very impressive. Yeah. Um, okay, but here are, here are our favorites, uh, and also some very popular ones. So the first one is obviously the crucifixion. Um, so Isaiah, <laughs> 700 years before all this actually happened, um, it describes the crucifixion in what may seem like more detail than any of the Gospels. Uh, so Isaiah is, is actually so accurate that people call it the fifth Gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it was written like 700 years before anything happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Isaiah and also Psalm would, would both describe this. And so we just picked a line from each of those to kind of read to show you. So 53.5, you've probably heard this before, but he was pierced uh, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then Psalm 22.18 is, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was pierced through the side on the cross, Jesus was, and then also the Roman soldiers actually did divide his stuff and cast lots. So just those are two uh, verses that, I don't know, just like happened way, way later. And it's just really cool. You can basically read through each of those chapters, uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and just be able to point out each place where Jesus, where it happens in the actual gospel accounts. Even like uh, it says that the suffering servant was buried with a rich man in his death. So the Joseph of Arimathea, he's a rich man. He gets his tomb. All these different things. It's, it's crazy. Um, and then mine is kind of more typology, to be honest, but I think it's still prophetic. But Jesus and Melchizedek, this interesting figure that shows up in three places, Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. There's a whole chapter about him in Hebrews. There's a quick narrative of him in Genesis 14, actually, not Genesis 12. Complete botch on my part. That's Genesis 14. Um, that's all right, though. Uh, and then Psalm 110 is the kind of more prophetic piece, actually, that Jesus does fulfill. But these two characters are really interesting, and I'd encourage you to read these chapters yourself and kind of get a feel for this. But uh, Melchizedek kind of foreshadows what Jesus is going to be like so far before he even comes. So he's a priest, and he's a king of the Most High God, it says. It says he's a priest of the Most High God, and he's a king. Now, those are two things that Jesus is supposed to be, a priest and a king and a prophet, um, as well as so much more. But uh, all the other biblical figures that are like strong men in the Old Testament— usually have one or maybe two of those things. So David is a king, and he is kind of a priest too, uh, but Jesus kind of puts everything together there. Melchizedek offers bread and wine to Abraham. Does that ring a bell? A little bit. 
Um, he's a priest of the Most High God, not of the, uh, not of the Levitical order, which is really significant, and I think this is actually kind of the prophetic piece. Um, so, this is Genesis, so this is before the Old Testament law is instated and before the Levitical priesthood becomes a thing. Um, there is a priest of Yahweh who's not Jewish, and he's not of the tribe of Levi, which is the like official priesthood line. And Psalm 110 says that the Messiah will be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And what that means is he's, he's, um, he's superseding the Levitical priestly order. Jesus is greater than the Levitical priest system. He, he is a priest in a greater sense. He is not reliant on physical descendant, uh, physical descendants for his priestly lineage. He's, he's above that, is what the book of Hebrews is making the argument for, um, just like Melchizedek. So he's a priest of the Most High God, but he's not constrained by like physical descent or anything like that. Really interesting stuff. He offers bread and wine. He even blesses Abraham, indicating that he's greater than Abraham. And then the whole book of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is greater than all of these figures. Um, there's so much there. And yeah. a lot of people have actually said there's so many similarities between Jesus and Melchizedek that they actually think it's the same person, which is interesting because they give a genealogy for every single person in Genesis, and they get to Melchizedek, and they just basically say he had no beginning and no end. That's what it says in Hebrews. And they, they, have, they give no birth or death date for Melchizedek, when before that, they did for like every single character. So a lot of people think that some people think that Jesus is actually, that's like a pre-incarnate Jesus or something like that. I'm not really convinced of that. I think it was actually just a liter, like a literary style to try to make the connection seem more obvious between Melchizedek and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite Old Testament type. It's really cool. And there's so much stuff like that. Yeah. Now, um, it took us that long to go over two prophecies, <laughs> but we're going to show you a couple charts that show you how many prophecies there actually are. So, Like a um, sample, like it's not. Uh, yeah, so this is a sample where you can actually uh, see what it's saying, um, but as you can see, it, on the left, it'll tell you what it's about, mm-hmm. and then it'll tell you where the prophecy is actually said in the Old Testament, then where it is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Um, and, and one big difference between Melchizedek and Jesus, to, in, in case you kind of get like worried, like, oh, wow, this person is like a lot like Jesus. Maybe it is uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Melchizedek did not fulfill all of these promises or prophecies. Even though he was uh, he was righteous, he was that priest that wasn't of the Levitical order, he didn't fulfill everything like this. Um, but yeah, we aren't going to read through this whole thing, but you can just look at it. You can just like Google something like this and find it. And this is actually like a short, short version of what is on there. So like if we were to go to the next slide this is actually a longer list where you can't we couldn't even find a version where you could see what it's saying because there are so many um yeah. but that's that's how long these lists are of things that jesus fulfilled where it was said and and where it was actually fulfilled yeah yeah and i just say like nothing will enrich your reading of the old testament more than being aware of some of these things mm-hmm. go and look up like prophecies jesus fulfills from the old testament and just look at a huge list and you'll be shocked at how, how many things there are and all the different types of Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Nothing will enrich and make the Old Testament more interesting than that. Mm-hmm. And that really makes things connect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the earliest Christians. I think that this might be one of the main reasons why I'm a Christian is this testimony of the earliest Christians and particularly uh, their sincerity and the way that they went to their deaths. Um, really smacks of authenticity to me. Um, And I'm very much persuaded by it. So I'm going to read this 
passage from 1 Corinthians uh, as kind of a springboard for this discussion. But So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, says, this is Paul writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and he goes on. Um, so just a couple really cool things from that. The, verse, the first sentence he says, For I delivered to you what I also received. So this, is, this kind of list here is an early church creed that was being passed on already by the time of 1 Corinthians, which was written in like AD 50 or something, like early 50s AD. So only like 20 years after the actual death of Christ. Um, so this is a creed that's circulating in the early church of basically this is what we believe, and Paul's just passing this on. And another cool point is he says basically what he's saying is like, these people are still alive. Go hear from them. Go and talk to them and see what they're going to say. Uh, a bunch of people saw the risen Christ. You can go talk to them, even 500 at one time. A lot of them are still alive. Go talk to them. It's kind of a challenge of like, the eyewitnesses are here. The Gospels are based off of eyewitnesses of the people that saw the events took place, uh, take place. So it's just a historical appeal from Paul. And he goes on to say in this, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, our, our faith is worthless. It is in vain. We are, still, we are still in our sins. So the point here is Christianity is a historical religion. It is based off of a historical event. It's based off of historical facts um, that are testable. We can go back and see, should we believe this religion? Unlike other religions, we can go back and say, like, let's really examine these claims. And I think they really hold up well. Is, is what we're contending. So I love that passage. It's super cool. Um, so eyewitness testimony, this idea of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are three independent historical accounts of the same event, like we talked about before, like three, three police stories or three uh, witnesses giving their stories, um, and how actually the slight differences in them kind of make them even more authentic. Um, they're personal accounts and stories of the people who experienced the events all written within a generation of the events happening. They're all within living memory. So the people, if, if you write a gospel, and then there's other people who are like, I know that this didn't happen, none of this would have come, come off the ground at all. But we can go test it and say, oh, the tomb's still empty, and this church is starting. Um, I think, so the next point, of the transformation and death of the apostles, I think this might be the most convincing point for me, is the conversion of Paul and James. These people are very significant, particularly because of who they were before. So Paul is, of course, former persecutor of the church. He has this position of extreme authority and power and influence in where he was, this high-ranking member of, of the Jewish order. And he completely changes his life around, chooses a life of basically misery for the next few years, uh, for the next couple decades, to serve Christ. He goes, like, what changed his mind is something to ponder. Um, he had no reason and no good motivations to leave his position and become an apostle of Jesus. Crazy. And also, James is huge. Um, so he's the half-brother of Jesus, who, uh, as Jesus was alive, before his crucifixion, James did not believe that he was the Christ. He thought he was insane. Most of his family, besides his mother, uh, kind of rejected his mission. And then all of a sudden, after Jesus' crucifixion, sometime, it said he appeared to James, I think this is actually when this happens, is in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that 
the risen Christ appears to James, his half-brother, and all of a sudden, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church, completely changes his mind, all of a sudden believes his brother is God, that's pretty crazy, and goes to die a brutal execution, um, not for believing in some sort of abstract philosophy, like a suicide bomber, but he's believing in something that he was in a position to know was a lie. If it was false, he would have known it was a lie. And yet he went to his death proclaiming, I saw this. Okay? Um, so you don't go to your death believing a lie, basically is the idea. He's in a position to know whether this thing was actually true or false. But he's saying, I believe this so much, I'm going to go to my death for it. So to make that point more clear, it's not like a suicide bomber who goes to bomb the two towers believing that he's going to get 72 virgins when he gets to heaven or something like that. That is an abstract idea and a philosophy. That's different than, I saw this event, and they're saying, recant, you didn't see this event. He's saying, no, I did see this event, and I'm going to endure this crucifixion because of it, or whatever, being burned mm -hmm. at the stake. That's different. Mm -hmm. Believing, Going to your death believing something you said you saw <laughs> is different, and mm -hmm. uh, really convincing to me. Mm -hmm. So, And it's not just him. Maybe one person could fake this, but dozens of early Christians went to their death with this same story. And if you don't believe that, uh, I, like you're just saying, well, James died like that. Did he really? Josephus, the same historian we're talking about, attests to James dying in this way. Um, so, unless you're just a huge skeptic, I think these are really, really good reasons. Yeah, and a couple other things on that. So, like, James, Jesus' brother, just ask, ask yourself this. How much would it actually take for you to think your sibling was God, right? <laughs> that's, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. And then, also with Paul... Um, the reason people lie are, are for three main reasons. So when, when, again, when police are investigating things done, uh, so like a murder or something like that, it's always done for a motivation of either gaining power, gaining money, or gaining sex or something like that. Now, Paul gave up money and power, right? He, he did not gain uh, money, power, and sex by lying, mm. if he were lying. But... Just because he didn't get those things, we can assume he was telling the truth. But also another reason people lie is to avoid consequences and avoid punishment. Um, as in, like, if you did something wrong, you would try, like, most people would try to lie to get out of it. Some might tell the truth, but um, most people would try to lie to get out of it. But none of these people who were punished or killed or tortured actually um, said, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all made up. They're like, no, it actually happened. So... Um, if they like, if they were lying, we would say that at least some of them would give up before they were killed brutally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, oh yeah, last last thing, last thing. Uh, so the transformation and the death of the apostles. So the death of the apostles and the birth of the church. Out of all the points in history um, mm -hmm. that atheists look at and try to make uh, other uh, theories for, so like. Um, resurrection of Jesus or the empty tomb or something, they can come up with other theories that kind of make sense. But the one fact that uh, secular scholars have not really been able to say, yeah, I can fully explain this, is actually this fact right here of the transformation and death of the apostles and the birth of the church. To that, um, a lot of the scholars have just had to say, like, yeah, I, I don't know how it happened. Like, yep, it, it happened, but we, we don't have another theory about mm -hmm. how it could have gone. Yeah. Um, like all, these dozens of people just had a really, really strong hallucination and then went to their brutal deaths proclaiming that they're, they're giving their whole lives to this idea of this mm -hmm. guy raising from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, 
Let's keep going. Timeless authority. So why should we trust that the Bible is always authoritative? Why it never changes? So why, why isn't it like, oh, that, oh, well, a lot of people say, oh, way back then in that culture it was saying this, but now it's, now it's different. So this is the argument of why it doesn't change and why what it says way back then still applies to us today. Um, so one, it's never gone out of print. Uh, that's, that's an idea to, to think about. Um, but it's a joke. <laughs> yeah, it was a joke. That's not actually a reason you should like bring up to someone. No. Uh, so for Matthew 24, 35, uh, it says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay. So if, if someone does believe in the Bible, you just give them that verse. Um, the Bible attests to its own timelessness. So if uh, like a progressive Christian that doesn't believe in the timeless authority is like, yeah, I, I like what the Bible says. Give them a verse like that. Um, now, again, with timeless authority, this actually hinges upon this idea of first principles. So like when we start thinking about things, what, what, do, we, um, what do we assume or what are the most important things we believe that actually affect the rest of it? So for timeless authority, our view of God and how he works and interacts with us is going to affect if the scripture is authoritative. Mm -hmm. Like if we were to say that God is not personal and doesn't really interact with us, we really could not say that the writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit because mm -hmm. God doesn't interact with us or something like that, yeah. right? That's just one idea. Um, mm -hmm. So so yeah, you, you have to make sure you have the right first principles. So if someone has a wrong conception of God, you're never going to really convince them of the timeless authority. Right. And just, yeah, two things real quick is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't give like the number of manuscripts or something like that. If someone says, why do you believe in God? Or why, why are you a Christian? The first thing I wouldn't say is not, well, it has 5,000 manuscripts or something like that. Um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a specific like, addressal of the critique of the New Testament isn't reliable, or the documents have been changed a bunch. And you have tools in your arsenal to be able to say, that's actually not true. Like, give me some more for that. Do you actually think that that's true? Give me some evidence for that claim. Um, and we'll see that the New Testament stands on, on solid ground there. Other thing I would say for the timeless authority piece is that, like, I was just thinking about this just now, is that this, like, it is timeless in that it links directly to our human heart and our conscience within us. And it just rings true, and it continues to change lives for thousands of years in the exact same way of making people more like mm -hmm. this one guy. Um, I just find that a convincing mm -hmm. piece to me. Yeah, and actually on that as well, I just thought of something too. Uh, and this might not directly connect to Timeless Authority, but it's still really cool. So C.S. Lewis actually like wrote about this, and you actually showed me this quote, but it was basically uh, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know it word for word, but he said out of like all the books he's criticized, mm -hmm. um, he was able to criticize the books more than it criticized him, but when he read the Bible, it was able to criticize <laughs> him more than he could criticize the book. Yeah. And, you know, he did that stuff because he was a literary scholar. So yeah. just the fact that it does connect to our human hearts, like C.S. Lewis, this great literary scholar, said that. He was like, I couldn't critique it enough. I was constantly being critiqued Critique by it, yeah. um, which, has some, which does say something about the Bible just in and, and that, of itself. And then the great passage of Matthew 24, 35, which is, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This transformation that brings that comes about because of my words striking at the human heart will yeah. never change. Yeah. Okay. And then the last point on timeless authority is we did want to point out just the authority it still has in some secular circles. Mm -hmm. So not every atheist is going to be like, yeah, yeah, it's authoritative. But 
there are some atheists that don't believe in God but are like, yeah, the Bible's really, really, really important. So um, we always reference him, but we're going to do a Jordan Peterson quote because he is technically secular. He is not a Christian, and he has influenced a lot of people um, on this topic. And this is something he says, and, he, and, and people follow him on this. And again, non-Christian here. Um, it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. Peterson continued, it's a whole different kind of true. I think this is not only literally the case, factually, I think it can't be any other way. It's the only way we can solve the problem of perception. So, like, we need a foundation in order to understand reality clearly. And basically, there, there are a lot of uh, secular scholars who are like, yeah, the Bible is the only thing that can do that. Um, so it even has authority in secular circles, which is really cool to think about. And Douglas Wilson, he was actually, he like did a response to this at one point, And he was basically like, yeah, this guy's talking like a Calvinist. Um, <laughs> because uh, Jordan Peterson is like, uh, he's, he's, he's also talking like a presuppositionalist. Like, we need to just assume the Bible's true in order to even understand anything at all. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, but, yeah. And another reason we always quote Jordan Peterson is because he does have a lot of influence in right the now. Christian church. All right. So, uh, last point is supernatural authenticity. So, just this, um, like that John Calvin quote in the beginning, it has, the Bible has a sort of majesty and divine quality to it. And the more, I think, you read it and the more you understand the word, the more you tend to see that. It becomes... The more I read the, the word, the more I'm convinced of it being self-authenticating. Um, it, it attests to its own truth value. It just rings true, is the best way I can put it. Um, and some scriptural passages support this idea is 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Mm-hmm. If we believe that God really inspired these documents, as like Psalm 19 and 119 talk about that as well, of this idea of the word of God being kind of guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired. Um, if we believe that, we should expect the word of God to ring true like that to us. Because our maker created us, and he made his word and gave it to us so that we could understand more about him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Um, we're going to like end, end this whole thing with the liar, lunatic, or lord argument. Now, some people would say that this isn't a good argument to use anymore, um, but other people say it, it is really good. Will and I, we both think that is actually a really good argument to use. It's, it's uh, sound and convincing, and it should be a tool you have in your toolbox. So I'm going to lay it out, and then we're going to explain it a little bit. And C.S. Lewis came up with this argument or made it really, really famous. I'm not sure if he was the first one ever to say this, but um, but yeah, so that's why we have a picture of him. So here's the argument. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's actually who he says he is, right? Those are the three options. You can't, you can't get another option, right? right? Um, so we know he wasn't a liar because if we go back to our ideas about like Paul and the apostles, like no one goes through that brutal of torture and death for a lie. Right? And um, the things he, he did and said, there, there was no indication of him like actually lying. If we, if we were to look at an eyewitness testimony and say, oh, hey, these are the normal reasons we think someone lies, we can't actually, we, we don't find any of that in what Jesus says or does or the Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. They are 
good in that respect. So we can say, yeah, he wasn't a liar. So the only two options would be lunatic or lord. So he's either a crazy person who actually believes what he's saying, or he is who he actually says he is, right? right? And so these are the two options you're left with. And the kind, of, the kind of the point we want to make here with this argument is you have to make a decision when it comes to Jesus, right? Um, but it's, it's basically this idea of if Jesus actually isn't Lord, he, he is crazy and he's of no value at all, right? right? Um, now, there is a fourth option that someone tried to use. So Bart Ehrman, the guy that I mentioned earlier, he said there's a fourth option. It's Jesus was like a myth or a legend. And he was like, that's why C.S. Lewis's argument doesn't work. A couple things on that. So a myth or a legend, it takes a very long time to develop a myth or a legend. The New Testament documents were within a generation, right? Mm -hmm. So a, a myth or legend couldn't have developed over that short period of time. But also, remember C.S. Lewis, he, like, his whole career in life was around myths and stories and stuff like that. And he actually wrote an essay in response to this idea, and he had a couple essays on on this, but he was he basically said he was like, "Do you actually think I didn't consider Jesus being a myth? If, if you don't think I considered that as an option, you're crazy, because this is what I do for a living, mm. right?" But the reason why he didn't add it as a fourth option is because he did write an essay called uh, "Myth Became Fact." He he considered like the option of Lord to be equated with myth. He thought Jesus was the true myth. So that's why he didn't actually use the option for myth. He thought they were the same. And that's what he believed. Right. And myth for C.S. Lewis is not a fable or a false story, but it's basically basically a meaningful story that's like passed by cultures. So he's mm -hmm. saying he's the truest instantiation of what a myth is. He doesn't mean it in a false story sense. He means it in a this is the this is the story of all stories. It actually happened. Right. And so yes, the whole point of this argument is that you have to you have to do something with the person of Christ. You can't just demean him as a as a good moral teacher. That's an incredibly um, common thing to say about Jesus is, well, I like some of the stuff he says. He's got the golden rule and stuff. He seems like a nice guy. He says some helpful things. But helpful moral teachers don't claim to be God. That's weird. That's super weird. So he's either off his rocker or his Lord, and he doesn't seem like he's off his rocker because he's the most wise guy that anybody's ever encountered. And so uh -huh. Jesus is the most written about, sung about, thought about, worshipped, painted about human of all time. He is the most significant human being in all of human history, and it's not even close. Every single other religion wants a piece of Jesus. Every single other religion, world religion, basically after Christianity, took Jesus and somehow morphed him into their system. And, and forces him in somehow. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus, and Christianity doesn't really care about the other world religions in terms of like trying to meld their stories in. Um, so he is the person of interest, as Jay Warner Wallace puts it. So he has a book called Person of Interest that kind of goes over an argument like that, which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Every worldview has to deal with this guy, and the other options on the table other than God are just kind of crap. <laughs> They're not good options, and it's unsatisfying to think of Jesus as a liar if you just read him, like just read his words, it just doesn't seem like he's a liar. It doesn't seem like he's a lunatic. He doesn't seem crazy. And he's making these claims about himself to divinity that are striking. Mm -hmm. So we think that it is best to conclude that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. All right, we're at the application. Um, first, 
point of application is allowing the Bible to have full authority in your life. So that was kind of the whole point of this lecture. We really want you to be able to trust the Bible and know the reasons why you can trust the Bible. So when you're reading it, you can just like take its its full power on and just be like, yep, I don't have any, any doubts, any questions, nothing. Just like, let me have it. Um, next one, strengthening faith and, and rejecting doubts. That, that kind of goes into that first point a little bit. But uh, remember, doubts are a real thing. Um, this can strengthen your trust and faith in the Lord. So if you do have those doubts, you don't like wobble or, um, or fall or anything like that. You can just like take them on and nothing will happen to your relationship with God. Right. Uh, next one, evangelism. Some of the stuff we went over, a lot of people don't trust the Bible and have misconceptions about when it was written or any of the things we actually talked about. So just knowing this stuff and again, just having a couple reasons ready really impresses people. Um, they aren't necessarily looking for the best argument or an entire book on why you believe what you believe, but just being ready and saying, hey, these are the, here's a couple reasons. That impresses people. Um, and then also, a lot of the history we went over, it's tangible things that you can actually reach. So it brings all these ideas to life. Like, um, it's easy to feel distant from like these old stories or these events that actually happened. But when we go over the evidence and we actually see pictures of these like old tablets or we see pictures of these ruins of these cities that we hear about, um, and especially if you actually visit them because you can visit a lot of these things, it brings it to life and it makes it even more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like what Will was saying, go down a rabbit hole, search into these things and like the Bible will actually come to life. There's actually like, here, here's another, if you're really interested in this stuff, there's actually a study Bible. It's like literally an archeological study Bible where they go over the archeology span of all the things mentioned and they show pictures, have notes on it. So if you're specifically interested in that stuff, maybe you should get that study Bible. Yeah, and just like, Kind of my two favorites, if somebody comes to me and is kind of blasting me with this argument of the Bible's not trustworthy, the Bible's been changed a bunch, something like that. Um, a simple sentence like, we have the earliest manuscripts and they say exactly what they say right now. Mm -hmm. Like, we can, we can see that. We could, we could see if there was a change and we can see that there hasn't been a change in what the Gospel of John says, for example. Um, we just, we would be forced to have to change things and we can see there is no change. Mm -hmm. um, and then I like I, I think the liar lunatic lord argument is super effective in just like kind of common discussions with people. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, who do you think Jesus was? And then, oh, he's he's a good moral teacher. Well, he, they don't claim to be God though. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, one or two reasons is really helpful. All right, so let's pray out. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the uh, revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you that it is true and a firm foundation to base our lives upon. Um, I just thank you for the personal testimony and the availability of historical resources and evidences that we have to be able to inspect and examine uh, the words of scripture. And I thank you for the disciples bravely going to their deaths and just showing the authenticity of their faith and the sincerity of their faith is inspiring to us. Uh, we confess that uh, where we have failed to acknowledge the depth and richness of your word, and we pray that you would change us in that regard. Thank you for providing such abundant testimony to the truthfulness of Scripture. Our finite minds very much need it. And give us a hunger and desire to seek out more of who you are. Amen. All right. All right.